our uh, text this morning has changed. <clears throat> it's not um, what you see in the bulletin there, uh, Matthew, um, but instead what we'll be reading in our sermon text for this, this morning is going to be Revelation <clears throat> chapter 14, verses 14 to 20. Revelation chapter 14. This uh, sermon title has changed as well. <clears throat> the sermon title I'm titling this, The Twofold Harvest. The Twofold Harvest. <clears throat> Hear now the word of God. And I looked, and behold, a white cloud. And upon the cloud one sat like unto the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him that sat on the cloud, Thrust in thy sickle and reap, for the time has come for thee to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. And he that sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. And another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, he also having a sharp sickle, and another angel came out after the alt- from the altar, which had power over fire, and cried with a loud cry to him that had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in thy sharp sickle, and gather the cluster, clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. And the angel thrust in his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and cast it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden without the city and blood came out of the winepress, even onto the horse bridles by the space of a thousand and six hundred furlongs. Please join me in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we we thank you that we worship you uh, not uh, not as uh, just a risen Savior, but an enthroned risen Savior, a Savior who is our King, a Savior who is King of the world, the King of the universe, and we praise you, Lord, as our King. We pray, Lord, that you would give us insight into this text that describes your kingship and describes your second coming. It describes a twofold harvest, and we pray, Lord, that you give us insight into these matters, that it would encourage your church. Lord, we are, we are a church that oftentimes are overwhelmed by what we see in this world. We are overwhelmed uh, to the point of despair. But help us from this text to, to, to listen to the Apostle John, to listen to his encouraging words that all is not as it seems, that there is a spiritual reality here going on and that you will ultimately triumph over evil. We ask for your encouragement, your enlightenment this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> Amen. 
Well, good ministers hesitate to preach from Revelation due to its apocalyptic symbolism. Rightfully so, its teachings are prone to be abused by those who wish to sensationalize current events. In my limited study of Revelation, I have found two hermeneutical principles to be immensely helpful in unlocking the meaning of this important book of the Bible. The first principle is that of audience. What do I mean by audience? If we are concerned with proper exegesis, using the historical grammatical method of interpretation, then the author's intention in writing is of utmost importance. We properly assume that the author, by the Holy Spirit, understood the revelation given to him and sought to express that revelation to a specific audience for a specific purpose. It is when we divorce our interpretation from the author's intent and his intended audience that we begin to drift astray into subjectivism and eisegesis, reading our own opinions into the text. Who wrote the book of Revelation and why did he write it? Revelation was written uh, by the last living apostle, that being John, while exiled on the island of Patmos to seven churches in Asia Minor. Patmos is one of the many small isolated islands off the southwestern shore of Asia Minor, and many believe that he was banished there, um, according to tradition, after he was, uh, they attempted to kill him. The purpose of Revelation, according to the commentator William Hendrickson, is as follows, and I'll quote, this is a quote from his commentary uh, on the book of Revelation. In the main, the purpose of the book of Revelation is to comfort the militant church in its struggle against the forces of evil. It is, a, it is full of help and comfort for persecuted and suffering Christians. To them, it is given the assurance that, one, God sees their tears, that their, two, that their prayers are influential in world affairs. Number three, their death is precious in his sight. Their final victory is assured. Their blood will be avenged. Their Christ lives and reigns forever and ever. And he is coming again to take his people to himself. Also, according to Hendrickson, the theme, this is a quote from Hendrickson, the theme is the victory of Christ and his church over the dragon and his helpers. That's the dragon, that is Satan. Uh, The apocalypse is meant to show, and this is an important point, it's meant to show that things are not what they seem. We go astray when we divorce the text from the rightful author, John, and his intended audience. We must never arrive at an interpretation of Revelation that would differ than that from what a first century churchman would also arrive at at the time of John's writing. Everything within Revelation must serve the author's original intent to encourage the first century believer. However, that being said, I am amazed at how relevant Revelation is to us for today. Brothers and sisters, are we not suffering persecution Are we not battling with the devil every day? Does it not seem on the surface that the church is losing ground 
at least from a worldly perspective, are we not in need to sit at the apostles' feet and listen to his encouragement? I would argue that Revelation, far from being a locked book, needs to be opened and read more than ever. Its pages and verses are full of encouragement and blessing for the modern church. So that's my first principle of interpreting Revelation audience. The second principle of interpretation that is important to discuss before we get into our text this morning is one of structure. The book of Revelation has a very unique structure. It is composed of seven parallel sections. Why am I confident of this? Because all of the first, all but the first of these parallel sections ends with the same event, the judgment of the judgment day and the coming of our Lord. Remarking on these parallel sections, Hendrickson says the following, a careful reading of the book of Revelation has made it clear that the book consists of seven sections and that these seven sections run parallel to one another. Each of them spans the entire dispensation from the first to the second coming of Christ. This period is viewed now from one aspect, now from another. Why is this important? That's the end of his quote. Why is this important? Because when we view Revelation in this way, the doctrine of the end times becomes amazingly simple. Each section describes a window into both the day of John's readers and our present day, called by John the Tribulation. Yes, that's right. John has told us in Revelation chapter 1, verse 9, this amazing fact that at the time of his writing, he was, quote, our brother and companion in tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ. We'll be learning a little bit about the patience of Jesus Christ in a little bit. But how can this be? How can we be both in the tribulation and the kingdom at the same time? These two words, tribulation and kingdom, don't go together. They, They don't belong in the same sentence in most eschatologies. There is only one way to resolve this problem, brothers. And that is if we understand the kingdom of God as a spiritual kingdom. And thus, we start to see this theme appear repeated all through Revelation. Things are not always as they seem. Where we are weak, he is strong. Paul describes it like this in Romans chapter 8, verses 36 to 37. As it is written, for your sake, we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter, yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Please stop reading Revelation, trying to find out when the tribulation or the so-called rapture is going to be. There will be no secret rapture, just a loud second coming. When we read Revelation in this way, recognizing the parallel sections the end times becomes rather simple. Jesus reigns in heaven as our triumphant king. There is an appointed time for us to suffer for his name's sake. However, his kingdom will be established. 
He will come to judge our persecutors. He will reign. We will reign with him in glory forever. And now I think we have enough backdrop to interpret our text in Revelation chapter 14, uh, verses 14 to 20. However, as you read Revelation 14, I want you to put yourself in the shoes of the persecuted Christians of Smyrna, in which John says in Revelation chapter 2, verse 10, do you fear, do not fear any of those things which are about, you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and you will and you will have tribulation 10 days be faithful until death and i will give you the crown of life our text is found in revelation chapter 14 verses and i'll read here 14 to 20 uh the first couple of verses of that section it is at the end of one of the of the fourth parallel section in revelation Um, Here, Christ is described, uh, Christ's return is described as a twofold harvest. We read in uh, chapter 14, verse 14, and I looked and behold, a white cloud upon the and upon the cloud, one sat like unto the son of man, having on his head a golden crown and in his hand a sharp sickle. The first thing we notice is that the person being described has the title son of man this passage is very reminiscent of another cloud and another son of man reference from daniel chapter 7 verse 13 to 14 which we read um uh, i had us read uh, during our readings Uh, i saw in the night vision behold and behold one like the son of man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him, and there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. So we know that the person being described is our great Savior, Christ, King Jesus Christ. We can see the clouds are often a reference to Jesus' second coming and of judgment. Now what to, now that we know who we are looking at, we turn our attention to what he is wearing, namely a golden crown. Actually, in the Greek it is a Stephanos, not a diadem. Um, his, t- his title, Son of Man, ties him back to his kingship in Daniel. But the Stephanos denotes his ultimate victory over his adversaries. Who was crowned with a Stephanos during the ancient Olympic Games? The victor in athletics. If you saw a Roman denarius from 79 AD, you would see a depiction of Titus wearing a Stephanos around his head. This um, this particular denarius was minted in celebration of Titus's victory over the Jewish rebellion in Jerusalem in 70 A.D. Ironically, Titus refused the wreath of victory because he claimed only to be the vehicle by which God had poured out his wrath on his people. 
So we see even the wicked know who holds the right to wear the victor's Stephanos. Lastly, we take notice of what the king is doing. He seems to be waiting. Why do I draw that conclusion? Because he is holding in his hand a sharp sickle. He is waiting for the call to harvest his wheat into his garner, his barn, or his storehouse. Why wouldn't he be eagerly waiting for the harvest? He died for the wheat. The Holy Spirit planted his wheat and caused it to grow and bear fruit. And now he intends to harvest his wheat, the culmination of his labors. The answer to his waiting comes in the next verse, verse 15. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him that sat on the cloud, thrust in thy sickle and reap. For the time is come for thee to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. And he that sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. At last, his wait is over. The time has come for Christ to reap the earth. The reason given is that the harvest is ripe. Verse 13 gives us insight. This is a few verses back, just a couple verses back. Uh, into this ripening of the wheat. It says this, Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. Yea, saith the Spirit, they that may rest from their, uh, from their labors and their works do follow them. As we live out our lives and abide in Christ, we bear fruit unto God. We are not saved because we bear fruit. We bear fruit because we are saved. John, uh, in, his, uh, in his gospel, John chapter 15, uh, puts it like this. <clears throat> uh, verse 4 and 5. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine. No more can ye, except ye abide in me. I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me, ye can do nothing. But there will come a time when we rest from our labors, either by being called home or being reaped on the last day. Our works shall follow us and Jesus shall gather us to be with him forever in his storehouse. Notice Christ's relationship to the wheat in Matthew chapter 3, verse 11 to 12. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. This is John the Baptist speaking. But he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire, whose fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his floor and gather his wheat into the garner, but he will burn up the shaft with unquenchable fire. We are his wheat. The world is his floor. Blessed are they that uh, how uh, blessed are they that are taken to his storehouse and not burned with the shaft in unquenchable fire. Now that we are on the topic of shaft, let us turn back to Revelation chapter 14. And see what becomes of the shaft. This is the second part of the twofold harvest described at his second coming in chapter 14, starting with verse 17. 
And another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven. He also having a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, which had power over fire and cried with a loud cry to him that had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in thy sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. And the angel thrust in his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and cast it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden without the city, and blood came out from the winepress, even onto the horse's bridle, horse bridles, by the space of a thousand and six hundred furlong. <clears throat> now the scene changes away from Christ and the first announcing angel towards yet another two more angels. The similarities are worth noting. Both Christ and the second angel have the task of harvesting. Both the first and the third angel deliver the message from the temple with a loud cry. The reason given for the harvest is the same. The time, the, uh, this time, the reason is that the grapes are fully ripe. The remainder of this message, I will focus uh, our attention on four aspects of God's wrath on the vine of the earth. Namely, the reason for God's wrath the extent of God's wrath, the location of God's wrath, and the suddenness of God's wrath. The reason for the timing of God's wrath is similar to the reason for his harvesting of the wheat. The grapes are fully ripe. However, the fruit is much different. Here, the fruit makes them prepared for the wine press. You will notice that a person is always bearing fruit. You are either in Christ, bearing fruit unto righteousness, or you are out of Christ and bearing fruit unto wrath. You are either a slave to righteousness or a slave to sin. There is no neutral ground here. Paul describes this in Romans chapter 2, verse 4 to 5, when he states this. Our, um, our des or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and longsuffering? not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance, but after thy hardness and impenitent heart treasurest up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Grapes ripen and bear, fruit for, uh, bear forth fruit unto wrath. Paul calls it treasuring up Onto thyself, denoting how enormous their evil works are. Daily they heap treasure upon treasure of offense against the Lord of glory. He waits patiently, suffering long their evil thoughts. Daily they grow more grapes upon their puny vines until they are weighed down to the ground with produce. He waits still. Behold, our God is infinitely long suffering, as he is infinitely holy. He is even more incensed by the fact that the wicked war against the saints. Notice that the third angel comes from the altar. Now, the altar is described in Revelation 6, 10 through uh, uh, verses 9 to 10 in this way. This is Revelation 6. And when he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. 
And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord? Holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? The altar is also linked to the prayer of the saints in Revelation chapter 8, verses 3 to 5, where it is said that our prayers, quote, ascend up before God um, out of the angel's hand. To use an anthropomorphism, God smells our prayers for deliverance. Don't think for a moment that he doesn't see your sufferings and your and our cries for how long, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood? Oh, our, our God is patient, but there is an end to his patience. He here in Revelation chapter 14, it is time to gather them to the winepress so that his infinite justice can shine forth. And oh, what a justice we see. Notice the extent of God's wrath. John sees the blood spread to 1,600 stadium, a stadium being 201.45 yards, which equates to about 183 miles, all being as deep as a bridle. Jacksonville, Florida is 166 miles away from Tallahassee. So you can think of it as a distance from here to beyond Jacksonville, filled with blood up to a horse's bridle. That gives you an idea of how vast God's wrath is, symbolically speaking. Notice that the location of God's wrath, it mentions that it is within the city. What city? The closest antecedent is found in verse 8 of the same chapter, Babylon that great city, because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Notice here that her fornication, her wickedness, is described as wine of wrath. God will invade Babylon and execute his wrath upon her. We may think God is slack, but all all is not as it seems. God's wrath will be very sudden. Peter warns of this in his second epistle. Second uh, Peter verses three nine through twelve reads this: The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness, but is long suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works therein shall be burned up. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, that what manner of persons ought ye to be in in all holy conversation and godliness, looking for and hastening unto the coming of the day of of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Allow me to close with just a few points of application. How shall we apply John's vision of the dual harvest? Well, number one, what will sustain us in death? Is it not the hope of the resurrection? Christ is waiting to reap us, to take us home, to be with him. Is this not comforting to us? What sustains us in our suffering? We have an advocate who waits to avenge us. We are to leave room for it. 
and not take it upon ourselves to answer back to those who persecute us. What should we our outcome on life be? Let our Lord find us watching upon his return. What will keep us from straying? His promise is it not his promises of mercy and the serious nature of his warnings? Come, Lord Jesus, reap your harvest. <clears throat> and with that, uh, let us um, respond to the Lord. We normally would have a, the Lord's Supper, but we're going to bypass that um, today. And let's stand as we uh, sing our closing hymn. Um, hymn is different than what your bulletin says. It's hymn number 218. Um, hymn number 218.